The following podcast contains explicit language. I'm Stephen Metcalf, and this is the Slate Culture Gap Fest Unkindest Cut of All Edition. It's Wednesday, June 20th, 2018. On today's show, Hereditary is the latest indie artsy horror flick. Does it continue the trend of terrifically taut, low-to-mid-budget movie making that has elevated the genre to new commercial and artistic heights? We will discuss. And then The Staircase preceded the recent true crime frenzy initiated by Serial and the Jinx, a template to what has come since, and still a classic in its own right, the whole remarkable show, including new episodes, is now available for greedy streaming. For that segment, we'll be uh, joined by Staircase Completist Rebecca Lavoy of The Mom and Dad Are Fighting podcast. And finally, there's only one The Bard, and there's only one The Isaac Butler. <laughs> we bring them together for you today. Isaac discusses his new and marvelous slate podcast, Lend Me Your Ears. Isaac, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, it's great to have you back. And of course, uh, we have Laura Miller in the house, the um, uh, book critic for Slate.com. Hey, Laura. Hi, Steve. All right. Well, Hereditary is the new art house hit horror film. It comes from the imagination of first-time writer and director Ari Aster. It's about a family deep in grief and their own codependency with one another. Uh, the action begins with the death of the grand matriarch, a troubled and complex woman whose legacy appears to be one of deep remorse uh, and perhaps a strain of mental illness. The deep and murky tributaries of a family living with secrets and lies. That's really sort of the subject of Hereditary. Um, it's filled with a lot of silence, plus there's a really cool Tudor-style house, I believe. Oh, it's Arts and Crafts. I uh, that's, what, that's what I said, Laura. Arts and Crafts-style house. <laughs> the movie stars Tony Collette and Gabriel Byrne. Uh, why don't we listen to a clip? You okay, Mom? What? Is there something on your mind? Is there something on your mind? It just seems like there might be something you want to say. Like what? I mean, why would I want to say something so I could watch you sneer at me? Sneer at you? I don't ever sneer at you. Oh, sweetie, you don't have to. You get your point across. Okay, so fine, then say what you want to say then. Peter. I don't want to say anything. I've tried saying Okay, things. so try again. Release yourself. Oh, release you, you mean? Yeah, fine, release me. Just say it. Just fucking say it. Don't you swear at me, you little shit. Don't you ever raise your voice at me. I am your mother. Do you understand? All right, well, that's a, that, <laughs> wow. there, there, yeah, but there we go to, to dive in. I mean, the, Laura, this is a movie filled with uh, misgiving and unspoken recrimination. That scene's just one example. It's, it's, it's you know this claustrophobic emotional economy of this family. Everyone feels regret vis a vis everyone else. I do think eventually at the center of the movie is the relationship between Tony Collette, the mother, an artist, a very frustrated uh, artist, uh, and her son. It becomes the central relationship. In movies, traditionally, a mother is really not allowed to express ambivalence about motherhood without becoming the villain of the piece. I think this movie was quite smart and self conscious about that history and tried to, in, in trying to subvert it. What did you think? Well, I, I would say that it's really hard to talk about this movie without talking about the ending because there is a an ambiguity to 
what's going on in the narrative that gets resolved in the ending. And depending on what you want from this kind of film, that will either please you or displease you. I prefer the state of mystery. And so I enjoyed most of the film up until maybe the last five or 10 minutes. um, Because it was really exactly in the wheelhouse of my favorite kind of ghost story, really, which is the story where you can't tell if the central character or in this case, characters are haunted or mad. Uh, And that puts it, to my mind, up there with The Haunting, which was the first adaptation of Shirley Jackson's The Haunting of Hill House, not the terrible special effects cursed one that was made in the 80s. Um, with, but the 1960 or 1963 version, I can't remember um, which which what the exact date was, but but with Julie Harris, a fantastic performance by Julie Harris. And this is similarly has at the center this incredible performance by an actress. But also, I think the sun is pretty, pretty amazing as well. You're you're wondering if what we're seeing is the the literal heritage of mental illness or some other kind of heritage that would be more sinister and occult. What happens in the story is that is that there's a there's a family with a, a therapist father and an artist mother who specializes in making these dioramas or basically they're like dollhouses and the the movie really announces its its originality from the beginning by by having the camera slowly zoom in on one of these little dollhouses on this room that at some moment where you can't really spot the exact moment becomes the real room where one of the children is sleeping and the father comes in and the dog and it's it's really kind of magnificent in my opinion a magnificent ghost story up until the point that it starts to resolve into an explanation for what's going on yeah i think there's so much going on in this movie that is so well done and so great and so confident from essentially a group of early career artists not counting tony collette and gabriel byrne about tony collette i will just say how many more like truly brilliant performances does she have to give on camera before we're just like yes she's one of the best actresses alive i mean she is incredible in this movie and i found her performance just like totally spellbinding and harrowing um this is one of the few horror movies I've been moved to tears by actually in that dinner sequence I was so upset by it um, but also it's a first time film like it's it's director is a first time this is his first feature length film yeah. his name's Ari Aster he's incredible the cinematography is by a relatively unknown cinematographer named Pavel Porgazelski. I apologize, Mr. Porgazelski, if I'm mispronouncing your last name. Um, the score is by a relative newcomer named Colin Stetson, who is a musician on the Arrival uh, score. Um, you know, so it's it, there's uh, Millie Shapiro who plays the daughter as a newcomer. The actor who plays the son is, you know, in his, you know, he's born in 1997. So it's not like, you know, he's not a prolific actor yet. So it's all these folks who are like at the beginning of doing a, doing this and they 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 really kind of knock it out of the park for most of it but i do think there is a thing 
where the themes, it's not just the story, the themes the movie appears to be really delving into around grief are actually misdirection for this other thing that's going Mm -hmm. on. And so while I found that other thing also upsetting and scary and everything like that, the, the theme, the earlier thematic exploration is way more interesting to me. I will also Mm -hmm. say there is one piece of voiceover in the last 30 seconds of the movie that feels very studio you have to tell us what was going on in this movie when the movie is already through visual grammar made it abundantly clear what the explanation is and that is the sort of kind of exposition as Laura said I prefer mystery where I was like if you would just cut that please just cut that in a director's cut it's the only thing you have to cut just cut that Um, but I I was really taken with it and I think it's worth seeing in a full theater so you can hear the audience begin to notice things in the frame and Mm -hmm. get really freaked out by it right it's a very very creepy uh, skin crawly movie um, and it 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 bypasses a lot of your conscious mind for most of it in ways that are profoundly unsettling you know that you are in for a uh, toss and turn night in your own bed when you go home um, and at the center of that I mean there are many elements to that but to me it was centrally the story of the ambivalent mother whose family has a history of mental illness, hence the title of the film, whether this person is experiencing a psychotic break and is a paradigmatically um, devouring, not just inadequate, but devouring and annihilating mother, or, or, or is she not? And is she protecting her family from satanic forces? And I agree, that's an incredible tradition. I mean, you know, the ghost story that may or may not be a ghost story, uh, you know, going back to Turn of the Screw by Henry James. I mean, it, it, it it's it's a marvelous act of filmmaking virt, virt, virtuosity. I love the newcomers anchored by Gabriel Byrne and Tony Collette. Isaac, I am completely with you. Um, uh, she has been so good for so long. Uh, Tony Collette is a, just a, like one of the great actors of her generation and deserves career level recognition and ought to be in more things and be given more tasks on screen tasks. Um, but I, the problem is that it works its way towards a kind of world building, a, a hyper explicit explanatory world building architecture at the end, um, you know, and suddenly becomes a universe film. Like, like there's this deep mythology, there's this built out world. It explains everything that you've just seen, and and everything that's ambivalent and quees making about the movie is suddenly grounded in a fairly explicit. Uh, explanation and whether that was imposed upon the filmmaker by the studio or suddenly anxiety and it's almost like you know the great young demo, you know the kind of demonic gesture of being a young t- t- virtuosic talent uh, suddenly got overwhelmed by anxiety of influence and all of a sudden Polan- the Polanski of Rosemary's Baby and the Friedkin of The Exorcist and suddenly all of this, all of this kind of history of the genre comes flooding in at the end in this kind of confused way and suddenly this maestro, this young maestro is not in control of his influences. But as you say, this is a first-time writer and director. Um, it takes no great inflation to say that this is a terrific uh, first effort by any means and just a, a compelling movie in and of itself. Well, the director has said in interviews that he wanted to make a conspiracy movie from the point of view of the people who are being conspired against. Um, so they don't know what's going on. And um, so I think that it's it seems baked in that, that 
you know, that this was always part of the intention of the movie was that it would resolve itself in the way that it does. So I don't think it was imposed, but it's interesting because... The, you know, this is this comes at a time when we've had films like The Witch, where the core audience for the genre, which is can be kind of, you know, cretinous at times, especially, you know, if you're talking about the sort of teenage boy element that that wants a more kind of cookie cutterish form of storytelling and wants everything clearly explained they really objected to the witch they also objected that it was not that it was more atmospheric than actually scary which i think would probably you know so this this film seems to be really trying to walk the line i mean there are some incredibly gruesome and horrific moments so it's not for the you know the <laughs> the easily uh, made queasy but um but but the core of it is the relationships in this family. And even though there is a teenager in the center of this drama, he's not depicted the way teenagers usually are in these films. I mean, he's really depicted as this this kind of the way that it, from an adult point of view, which is he's just when she says that he's sort of sneering at her, she's not entirely wrong. I mean, he's just mm-hmm. this kind of pot smoking sullen sullen kid um there i i i the one of the scenes that is just probably the most or the sequences that is the most powerful is that he has this horrible experience for which he is somewhat responsible and he comes home and he just doesn't tell anybody he just gets into bed and um and and spends the night knowing that this awful thing has happened and just waiting for the rest of the world to wake up to it. And that scene is so powerful. It's really just a shot of his face. Her performance is very, you know, it's it's an amazing performance, but it's very much on the outside. His is very much on, uh, is, is very much held in. Uh, but mm-hmm. that is a fantastic, fantastic scene. I mean, there would, the horror of that is a deep emotional horror that just it was so powerful. All right, the movie's hereditary. It's in semi-wide release. You should go see it, check it out, and uh, uh, pour your ambivalences about it and our segment onto our Facebook page at facebook.com slash culturefest. All right, moving on. All right, now's the time in the show when we do the business. And first up, we have a note about the production assistant job that we discussed on uh, last week's episode. Hey, everybody. Uh, This is Benjamin Frisch, the producer of the show. Um, Just wanted to say that we got a lot of really qualified candidates and applications in um, already. So we've closed uh, applicant submissions now, but uh, we're really excited to start going through the ones that we got and we'll be contacting potential candidates soon. Thanks. Also, uh, a quick reminder that Summer Strut is happening soon. Send your struttiest recommendations to us on Twitter using the hashtag Summer Strut or find our Summer Strut post on Facebook.com slash CultureFest and leave them there. We're going to be closing submissions for these soon, too, so get on it. Also, in uh, Slate Plus today, we're going to be talking about our summer cultural diets. To hear segments like that and to get ad-free podcasts, sign up for Slate Plus. 
Slate Plus is our membership program and a great way to support us. For just $35 for your first year, you can help cover the cost of producing the Culture Gab Fest and your other favorite Slate shows. And of course, in return, you'll get extended ad-free versions of this show and other great Slate shows and a ton of other great benefits. So if you'd like to support the Culture Gab Fest, go to slate.com slash culture plus and join Slate Plus today. Okay, onward. The Staircase is a multi-episode true crime documentary. It appeared in America in 2005, over from France and French filmmakers. This was before the genre had become a thing, a genre, really. It didn't have all of the familiar tropes in place, but The Staircase helped put them there. This documentary tells the story behind the death, the possible murder, possible accident of a North Carolina telecom executive named Kathleen Peterson, who died at the foot of a back staircase in her Durham mansion. Did she suffer a spectacular, if improbable, fall, or was she bludgeoned to death? What ensued was the trial of her husband, Michael Peterson, a novelist and ex-Marine. The documentary, In Toto, is now out on Netflix. It now includes a 2013 update and three brand new, fresh episodes. Let's listen to a clip. If somebody said to me, okay, we are going to retry you and you are going to go through all the smear again and we're saying all this terrible shit and all this horrible stuff's gonna happen, it's gonna happen, gonna happen. And at the end, you're gonna be found not guilty and you get to go home and everything will be fine. I'd say, go ahead, beat me up for the next two years. I don't give a shit. Go ahead, say anything you want, I don't care. But, you and I know that may not be the result of two years of trial. It could well be, oh, well, you're guilty again, and off I go. Whether it's an offered plea, a no-contest plea, or a guilty plea, is that to second degree, or is it to, in, uh, to a voluntary manslaughter? I'm here to give you right. the options, but at the end of the day, it's your life, and yep. you need to live it how you want to live it. Hmm. All right. Well, we should say that's the voice of David Rudolph, who uh, was uh, the sensational, in many ways, phlegmatic and sensational um, defense attorney for Michael Peterson. Uh, We're now joined by Rebecca Lavoie, who's the co-host of Mom and Dad Are Fighting. Rebecca, welcome to the show. Hi. It's so, so exciting to be here. It's exciting to have you. You are a (laughs) staircase completist. Mm -hmm. Uh, I have to say that I watched this episode lapped up every second of it when it when it first uh, hit this country in 2005. Mm-hmm. I found it completely riveting. I walked away improbably thinking that Michael Peterson was innocent. And over the years, I've come to think that my former self was insane. There's no other hmm. plausible explanation <laughs> for how this woman died. And yet I want to see him get off Rebecca Lavoie. There are many confusing thoughts in my head. Sort them out for me. Describe <laughs> to me. Your relationship with this documentary. Well, my relationship uh, is is somewhat tied to a little bit of the point you made in your intro there that I take umbrage with about uh, true crime genre sort of uh, coming into its own now. It has always been a thing. It's just only now being embraced by the masses, particularly the intellectual masses now. But I've been a true crime writer since... 2007, 2008 was when my first true crime book uh, was published. And uh, there are, you know, a lot of stories out there and there always have been around these kinds of cases. And my relationship with The Staircase, the reason it is so 
oh, it's such a part of my consciousness around this this entire true crime storytelling stuff is that it is it's unique in that it is the only episodic series, the only documentary really where the audience is at a point he definitely did it. And then an hour later, I don't think he did it. And then an hour later, holy shit, what did the prosecution just do? He definitely didn't do it. And it really takes you on that journey. But it also provides a really unique look inside of a case that there's nothing comparable to. I mean, this, I call it the Citizen Kane of true crime for that reason. <laughs> there's nothing comparable to the access you get to the defendant, to his team, to their strategy, to their meetings. And I know that people like to throw, you know, javelins at this because they say it's, you know, only one-sided, but they, filmmakers in the original episodes do a very good due diligence effort in getting the prosecution's case into the narrative. And they interview the prosecutors, which is a rare opportunity as somebody who reports on this and writes about it. Like, prosecutors do not like to talk about cases that are not fully adjudicated. So that was a rare and interesting opportunity. They're in the courtroom for the whole thing, which is amazing. Um, but I have a different conclusion than you. I don't think he did it. And I think there are mm. some really interesting uh, clues that point that way. So okay, we well, have to before, agree to disagree. <laughs> uh, I'm, 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 I would love to be swayed back into the innocent column for, for a host of reasons we'll get into. But first, for those of our audience who haven't uh, watched The Staircase, there are two completely conflicting theories as to what happened um uh, especially Not in the just first two there's so well. many different theories, <laughs> no, so there, many there, theories. There, there are many 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 theories but but essentially it comes down to in the original show she fell down the stairs after putting away a bottle or two of wine with her husband he's down at the pool she's back in the house she slips on a top staircase in this back staircase fall down falls down the steps uh uh begins to bleed uh, profusely. He finds her alive, calls an ambulance. By the time they arrive and the police arrive, she's dead. The prosecution's theory is that he uh, must have gotten into some kind of a conflict with her and bludgeons her to death with a, f if I remember correctly, a, a blow. A blow uh, poke. A blow poke. <laughs> you know, if you drink every time they say blow poke in the first eight episodes, you will be dead of alcohol poisoning by the time you're done. It's, a, it's basically a fireplace poker. Yeah, yeah, but it's exactly. also like a, a stoker. I think you blow through it to stoke the yes. fire. Right. You can all—it's like a multi-tool for your fireplace. Right, but it's like a a a, a metal rod, not too thick. Yeah, right. just for people who want to get a sense of what that looks like. Yeah, so yeah, we should we should definitely talk about those other theories. The one of which is, of course, the most delightful, which I would love to hear Rebecca explain, mm. is the owl theory, which is also right. weirdly the name of my band. <laughs> <laughs> well, what's interesting about the owl theory is it's easy to dismiss as a fringe theory. And I will give you, I think, the best resource for the owl theory that's that's digestible and quick is the very first episode of the podcast Criminal, which focuses on the Peterson case through the lens of the owl theory. The theory being that a barred owl, which is a large owl species known to swoop and hit people on the head with their talons. They're bastards. Yes, did Bard exactly owls. that bastards. to Kathleen yeah. Peterson as she was walking from the pool back up to her house. Uh, the the you know support for this theory is the shape of the wounds on her scalp and the fact that there were feathers consistent with barred owl feathers found in the wounds on her head. So and wood splinters from a tree as well, right? right? Yeah. And the theory is that she uh, felt she was attacked by this owl, perhaps disoriented, concussed, injured 
ran into the house, went up the stairs, didn't make it, and fell down the stairs as a result of this injury. Um, so it was the double thing of being attacked by an owl and falling down the stairs. So that is a theory. And by the way, the Audubon Society of America has kind of put their like feathers behind this theory. They think it's a decent theory because mm-hmm. these owl attacks are surprisingly common. It just sounds so absurd. And I think it mostly sounds absurd to those skeptics who would point to the um, Doctrine of Chances evidence that was led into the original trial, uh, which is that Michael Peterson also knew another woman when he lived in Germany who also was found dead at the bottom of a staircase. Which so, is one of the the... the original series is many bizarre twists right yeah. it's like yeah. you think that the the story that you first hear is you have this couple they're drinking you know one of them dies in this mysterious way and for the first hour you're like well this seems pretty straightforward right <laughs> and then uh how are they going to get eight hours out of this but then the 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 weird twists of their history and of the case just keep coming and one mm-hmm. of them is this one which is that his when he was living in germany his essentially uh you know that someone else that he knew that uh that he uh died of falling down a staircase not only that but then he and kathleen adopted this woman's two orphaned daughters who become Mm -hmm. main characters of the show yes and who Who stick by him worship him yes worship him yes yeah and then there's the other layer which i think the last three episodes addresses completely differently in a way that kind of offends me when you compare to them to the original series is that michael peterson himself is not a likable guy like to me this has oh, nothing to dreadful. do with yeah this has nothing to do with all the stuff you you that the <clears throat> prosecution put out that puts out there which is absurd about his bisexuality about all these reasons why he's not trustworthy which are total bs reasons but he is that insufferable guy that you meet on the train or at a restaurant or like and immediately ex- try to extricate yourself from a conversation with he's just obnoxious loves the sound of his own voice comes off as a super narcissist and even though, like, I believe that he didn't do it, and I, I really want that to be true, I also acknowledge that, like, I would never want to go to dinner with this guy in a million years. He's he's one of these guys that thinks that he's charming when he's not. Right. Yeah. And he's my parents had a couple of friends like this when I was a child, and they were like my first awareness of how someone could be like really making an effort to to sort of. M- make a great impression and be funny and clever and just completely have the opposite effect. Yeah, there's Mm. this shot in the original eight episodes. We should say that Netflix has packaged this as one season of a show. The Mm -hmm. first eight were the ones that ran on the Sundance Network originally in like 2005, 2006. And then the new ones are the ones that are that are after that. Um the uh, uh, there's a shot in that original group of episodes very early on of Michael Peterson lighting a pipe. And the way he does it, right before he sits down to an interview and his sort of book line study, and the way he does it, it just fills you with visceral loathing. It's a very strange thing. Uh, What I thought was so fascinating about these new episodes, though, is that there's this sort of like everyone in it has been the star of a documentary series now. Mm -hmm. And they have a certain awareness of how they are coming across that completely transforms the nature of it. Because every Mm -hmm. single person is now self-consciously performing in a way they weren't before. Particularly Peterson's adopted two daughters who who just like, they're now adults. They now have, you know, sort of fully formed lives. And there's this sort of interesting performed filial devotion. Our father is the best thing uh, let's all go to the cemetery together staginess that starts to creep into it that that 
lends a sense of, uh, which I think actually kind of works, but it lends a sense of untrustworthiness to the whole affair, I right. found. All right. Well, I want to hear. I want to hear from you why you think he was. Uh, why you think he was innocent? There are a couple of things that point to it for me, but the one that uh, sticks out the most, and the one that I was remember, and watching the original series for the first time, and really doing that thing where after each episode I was going back and forth. We get as a witness for the prosecution Brad from Raleigh, which is the screen name for Brent, the escort that we find out Michael Peterson hired to have secret sexual encounters with. Um, they had this email, this explicit email exchange between the two of them. They sort of mined Peterson's computer. And of course, they brought in his bisexuality as evidence that he wanted out of this marriage, which was crazy gay panic stuff when you see the way that the prosecutor framed it, especially the female prosecutor. Anyway, so here we have Brad from Raleigh. He's on the stand. And I like to think of him character-wise as, like, he's the Cato Kalen of the case. Or could have been, right? <laughs> Clearly, yes. <laughs> he's like this, you know, outside, you know, mar on quite somewhat on the margins person of the story, sitting up there like a deer in headlights. Except you have to remember, he had no idea that he was going to be a witness. Michael Peterson, when he had this encounter with this prostitute, had assumed at the time that no one was ever going to know about this, right? It was a complete secret. All of their communication was secret. Their meetings were in secret. And yet, when he had the meetup with the guy, he spent their whole date talking about how much he loved his wife and how much he, you know, this was a part of him that he needed to fulfill, but that he was really committed to his marriage and he loved his wife. Now, the prosecution's assertion that this was evidence that he wanted to get out of his marriage might hold water if Peterson had known in advance he was going to kill his wife and his plan was, I'm going to have sex with this prostitute and tell him how much I love her because someday he's going to be a witness in my murder trial. <laughs> um, but that's not the way it worked. That was the real conversation he had with the prostitute. And to me, that points to Michael Peterson just had a secret he was keeping. I don't think Kathleen knew he was having these encounters. I think that was a stretch. But I think he had a secret he was keeping. But even in keeping that secret, he was true to himself with the guy with whom he was keeping the secret. And the truth was, he loved his wife. So I don't think he killed her. I just, it doesn't point to that for me. As much as I don't like him, I just don't think he did it. <laughs> Isaac, Isaac, you're a Shakespeare scholar. You explained to Rebecca that people kill those they love. <laughs> no, I, we I, did just see most, Othello. Uh, we did, yeah. most easily. Laura and I did just go see Othello, uh, uh, which is you know surprisingly <laughs> relevant to this show since it's about uh, the unknowability of human beings and how it can lead us to kill those we're most uh, uh, intimate with. I always sort of held on. To, to me, what was the interesting tension of the show was that I always felt that he probably did it not in the way described not for the reasons described but maybe he shoved her down the stairs or, or what they got into some drunken argument and something happened it was not first degree murder but it was something else but uh and believing that and that he was railroaded and framed at the same time is was like part of the really interesting tension of the show i would say after the new episodes that's probably still where I am. But what's fascinating to me about the new episodes is to me, there's like almost a shift in genre where like it's really just a tragedy now. No matter what you believed happened, the way the story unfolds and ends is 
unbelievably unsatisfying and devastating, right? Whether you think he did it or not, what you're left with is this group of just like intensely broken people who are obsessed with this event and obsessed with each other and can't escape from its gravity. And justice can't not actually be served in that circumstance because that truth can't ever actually be found out. We should mention that one of the centerpieces of these two new episodes is the the speech that Candace Kathleen's mm-hmm. sister makes in the courtroom where really first of all she accuses the film of you know just providing a platform for for Peterson to sort of you know try to exonerate himself and it, it's clearly like her chance to say to these to this to these filmmakers who she stresses her fa- her side of the family never cooperated with her view of what happened and she is this looming figure in the background because it's clear what what Peterson's lawyer says that the reason why the state is not going to cut a, de- a better deal with him is because they don't want to have to deal with the wrath of Candace mm-hmm. and then later Would you <laughs> yeah, no, I, she's, she's, she, and, and you think, okay, so there's part of this is that she feels that a wrong has been done and she wants justice. And she also filed a civil suit against him and she won some enormous settlement, which he can't pay because he's completely broke. And you, and it almost seems like she, the main antagonist is really off of screen by the end because she's not cooperating with the project. And so finally she gets to speak and the whole thing has become this, like this war between Michael Peterson and Candace. And, and really like maybe it doesn't even matter any longer what it was about. You know, it's one of those things that the conflict itself is almost self-perpetuating. Yeah. No, beautifully put. Um, Rebecca, last word. I think it's about the owl. No, I'm just <laughs> I do though. Sorry. I'm always going to be on Team Owl on this one. I, I, I might be disappointing after your uh, comparisons to Othello and the, and the drama <laughs> of the, lay, the, the nuanced layered storytelling. But um, there is a, a strong possibility it was an accident of another kind. Yeah. And just the all of these people with these intense personalities are the ones to bring the story our way. I mean, it's good stuff. It's completely addictive viewing. I, I couldn't agree more. I mean, people, if they, especially if they haven't seen the original H, just go right back to the beginning and, and binge the whole thing. Um, Rebecca, it was awesome having you on our podcast. This has to happen again. It was wonderful for soon. me, too. Thank you so, so much. Once again, Rebecca is co-host of uh, the Slate podcast, Mom and Dad Are Fighting, and her own joint called Crime Writers on dot, dot, dot. Uh, check them both out. All right, well, Lend Me Your Ears is the new podcast uh, from Slate and uh, its host and writer, Isaac Butler. Uh, Isaac, uh, do you agree with me? Shakespeare is the ultimate humanist, therefore his work speaks to every human situation, yes or no? <laughs> that's a that's a big statement. I I'm... feel like you're ventriloquizing Harold Bloom. Harold Bloom there, yeah, yeah. right? Yeah. <laughs> um, uh... Uh, that's interesting because my, you know, because Let Me Your Ears is explicitly about politics. Well, uh, we were going to get there, Isaac. Yeah, yeah sorry. Do, only uh, after answering the yes or no question. Th- that that's a very complicated yes or no question. I would say for the for the most part, sure. 
<laughs> okay, well, you'll go with it. Um, all right. Um, this, as you say, is a podcast about politics, Shakespeare and politics. So I have another question for the, for sure. you. Is this Does this analogy hold that just as Shakespeare would use ancient history to explore with a degree of safety Elizabethan or Jacobean intrigue, so too, sir, I accuse you of using Shakespeare, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> yes, that's exactly right. The difference is, is that I can't be jailed for talking about contemporary <laughs> politics yet. for my stage yet, yet. Uh, yeah, exactly. And Shakespeare could. I mean, what's what's really fascinating to me about Shakespeare is because he couldn't comment on his era directly from the stage and he couldn't stage current events, he had to reach into these other stories, folktales, short stories he had read, myths, um, Plutarch's lives, you know, all the uh, the history of his own nation. Um, uh, and within those, you know, because he couldn't talk about actual current events explicitly, he was able to dramatize thematically what was going on in politics. And even though our society is very different from the early modern era in London, those same struggles and those same ideas are deeply enmeshed in our politics. And every generation is going to rediscover Shakespeare's plays and what they mean. Um, uh, and, you know, I wanted to be a little bit of a part of that when it came to politics, you know, uh, in part because I was trying to understand our own era better, but um, do it not just in ways that studied our own time, but sort of talked about the timeless political themes that that we are struggling with. All right. Well, before we dig in any further, why don't we listen to a clip? The conspirators kill Caesar on the floor of the Senate. Caesar cries out, et tu, Brute. When it's over, as the conspirators dip their hands in the blood of Caesar and spread it on their arms, they are approached by Mark Antony. Once he realizes they aren't going to kill him, Antony asks if he can make a speech to the people, and Brutus makes his third error. He agrees to it. This gives us the play's majestic centerpiece, the competing orations of Brutus and Mark Antony over the body of Caesar. It's a competition that Brutus will lose. Isaac, it's a wonderful podcast, and I I, I, um, I love the choice of Julius Caesar. And you say something um, that is just extraordinary. You say that Brutus believes in reason, and that reason will prevail before the people, and that he will he believes that he's going to be able to justify the assassination to the people using reason, and that this points to a certain theory of political violence, which is that it's acceptable when the cause is just, and acceptable when it can be contained ex post facto by this appeal to the reason of the people. And in this respect, Brutus is Obama, a kind of a, a kind of a tragic figure. I mean, not that Obama believed in this theory of political violence necessarily, but Obama did believe that he could appeal directly to the American people, to their, to their, the better part of their uh, conscience, um, and turns out to be tragically wrong. Yeah, I mean, I really, I really genuinely believe that. I should say about Obama. I mean, I was actually, I think I include a little caveat that it's like, like all presidents, right? Like American presidents, one thing that American presidents believe, and actually most Americans believe that I'm not sure I believe, is that you can murder your way to solving certain problems, and that or kill your way to solving certain problems, and then you can sort of like put that genie back in the bottle. And I think as our recent post 9/11 history shows, that's just fundamentally untrue. Like we, those problems cannot be solved that way. Uh, when you do that, you create 
further oppositional forces, the, you know, and we end up in this sort of intractable situation. Now, what Brutus is doing is something a little bit different, which is assassinating a friend slash political rival who's about to take over the state. But the same thing remains, which is that he feels like there is, if you have the right values, there are certain tactics that can become justifiable. And then, you know, because those are conditionally limited to certain circumstances. You can just be sort of call Ali Ali oxen free and move on. And one of the reasons why I turned to Julius Caesar was it's sort of um, to do first was that, you know, I was this podcast. We started working on it almost a year ago now. It was it was a, there were a lot of moments where I was reading my friends being like, yeah, we should just go punch. Uh, Richard Spencer in the face or, you know, whatever it was. And I just kept thinking about Julius Caesar and being like, guys, once you start doing that, it doesn't end well. And the people it doesn't end well for are usually actually leftists. So, you know, like maybe we should try something else. And that was kind of what led me there, actually. Hmm. It's it's and it's kind of notable that one of the reasons why people think that is because that is in a major theme of American popular culture is redemptive violence. Yeah. And um and in a way you almost have to go to Shakespeare to find the point of view that says you know you know that says hold on you you can't kill your way to virtue. Yeah, I really genuinely believe and will happily argue with anyone about this anytime they want that Shakespeare abhorred violence and was incredibly um, frightened of it and found it to be terrible, even though he rarely stages the kind of Baroque, gruesome sequences of his Jacobean peers and the people who came immediately after him, except in King Lear, uh, where someone's eyes get gouged out and stepped on on stage. He, um, I really believe that Shakespeare abhorred violence and did not and was freaked out by it and that that's really present there in his plays even henry v which is supposedly the great patriotic play contains all sorts of sequences about how that make it very clear that henry is embarking on this war for political gain that there's sort of no principle behind it that these people are dying for nothing he has one of his best friends from henry the fourth hanged you know that that you know there's there's a real suspicion about violence and power that runs throughout his body of work talk now a little bit about richard the second which is the second play that you delve into what what's it has a somewhat unique status in the shakespeare canon that maybe made it opposite to where we are now it's another right? deposition play yeah, right, yeah yeah it's another it's another play where the succession uh, from one ruler to another goes horribly awry, which Shakespeare wrote a lot of in part because he we forget this because the succession from Queen Elizabeth to James I was smooth-ish. But in the decade leading up to it, Elizabeth wouldn't let anyone publicly talk about the succession. She had no kids and it was clear that she was going to die. And so, you know, people were really freaked out about it. And there's a lot of plays, not just by Shakespeare, where successions go awry. Uh, Laura was actually a guest for our Slate Plus episode about Richard II, in part because she's such a War of the Roses enthusiast. Um, what I was really interested in about that play, um, which is not as well known or as often performed as Julius Caesar, has fewer famous scenes and lines and is about more obscure historical figures. But was interesting to me about that was this idea of like, how does the person in charge lose legitimacy and how do they gain it? Right. And I think in the wake of an election where a president was elected by the minority, 
right? He did. He did not win. Even he did not win the plurality of the votes. And there was uh, almost certainly some form of election interference that that that, you know, he and his cronies participated in and, you know, et cetera, et cetera, and so forth. And we have people saying he's not my president. Right. What does that mean to say not my president? And what are the implications for the system? And what are the risks to us going forward when we start to lose faith in not only the people who run the system, but the system itself? You know, like, what does it mean to have to sit through the post Neil Gorsuch Supreme Court? You know, uh, for a lot of Democrats, that seat was stolen from Merrick Garland and uh, through an illegitimate process, even though it was legally correct, it was illegitimate. And so what does it mean that we have all of these rulings now that would have been completely different, you know, had it had a legitimate process, et cetera. And so I was really fascinated by those questions. And those are really complicated, difficult questions to ask. And I think Richard II is a play that sort of really beautifully deals with them. The thing about Richard II is that he is so insupportable to the aristocrats who are responsible for remove taking him off the throne that um that it seems worthwhile to get rid of him. But then again, something is irredeemably broken when they do, which is, as you say, the legitimacy of his of his of any king's reign. Once you decide that the process by which someone becomes the ruler or the president or whatever, it can be equivocated with, you know, can maybe it doesn't really count or, or anything like that. You then leave your guy vulnerable to the same sort of insecurity. And I think it's true that Shakespeare did dread this because, you know, when we look back, we don't realize that his time was so much more violent than our own. We People have a, there's a kind of a presentism that makes people think that we live in the most violent time ever. But we're talking about people who routinely saw public executions in the city streets and who were coming out of a kind of whiplash period of religious conflict where, well, we're all Protestants now. No, we're all Catholics again. No, we're Protestants again. And not only are we Protestants, but if you're like, uh, you know, if you're secretly distributing Catholic literature, we are going to literally rip you apart in front, yeah. of, the cro- in front yeah. of the crowd. Yeah. So this was this was, you know, a really disturbing period to live through. I mean, I can imagine very frightening. And I think that as much as we feel like we're living in a condition of like unprecedented chaos, we don't really realize what it's like to live in a country whose whole system of governance is just sort of teetering. All right. So uh, predict the future of the American Republic by telling me (laughs) what the future episodes of uh, Lend Me Your Ears are going to um, focus on. So our next episode, which will uh, air on the second Tuesday of July, it's the second Tuesday of every month through October. Our next episode is about King Lear, where a screwed up succession kind of destroys the entire world. So that's great. No, <laughs> uh, uh, but, you know, we've sort of talked about two other succession crises. So in King Lear, we're going to talk a lot more about the nature of power and how 
power and entitlement come to resemble insanity because I really think that's one of the things going on in that play. After that, we move on to measure for measure because I wanted to sort of talk about other things about politics rather than the legislative process. We move on to measure for measure, which is kind of the me too uh, of Shakespeare plays. It's a play uh, where... um, a nun comes to plead for her brother's life because he's going to be executed for having premarital sex. And the the uh, sort of acting duke that she comes to to plead to says, uh, OK, I will let him go if you have sex with me. Uh, and then when she says, uh, I'll tell everyone that you threatened me this, he says the most timeless of Shakespeare's mm-hmm. lines. Who will believe they? Uh, so that's Measure for Measure. It's a comedy, weirdly. After that is Othello, which is where we'll be sort of probing the nature of identity and otherness. And we return to ancient Rome with the final play, Coriolanus, which is a really brilliant, brilliant, amazing play that sort of no one ever reads. There's a great recent film of it um, directed by and starring Ray Fiennes as Coriolanus, which is about the sort of rivalry between the common people who are trying to gain more political representation in the system and a heroic general who is running for consul, which is a kind of like the executive branch of uh, Rome, who is a man of such deep principle that he won't moderate the principle that he absolutely hates the poor. And it is about the <laughs> conflict between those two political forces. It's about the populism versus elitism, essentially. Um, uh, and, and it's a conflict in which neither side comes out looking particularly great. So after sort of probing these other angles of politics, we'll return to you know, the government and how it functions with the final episode. The current catastrophe. Mm. Yeah. Mm. All right. Well, the podcast is Lend Me Your Ears. It's Isaac, Isaac Butler's baby. Uh, make it yours to adopt it. It's wonderful. It is really good, Isaac. So Thank you so much. All right. Now is the moment in our podcast when we endorse. Uh, Laura, what do you have? I want to recommend a book by Johan Hari called Lost Connections, which is about the science of depression. And it's sort of a debunking book about antidepressants. And it's gotten a lot of pushback. He has a somewhat um, shadowed reputation because he has some plagiarism accusations in his past. But that has been, I think, used against a book that is itself pretty, you know, pretty thoroughly documented. And it's it's basically him saying why, if most researchers and many, many psychiatrists believe that antidepressants are actually not that effective or effective only in so few cases, do we still have as a dominant paradigm that depression is caused by a chemical imbalance in your brain, which is something that if you're at all knowledgeable about the issue, nobody believes that anymore. And an exploration of other ways of dealing with depression or seeing depression as a symptom of a, lar- a larger cultural, social, and in many cases, just life problems. And I've, I found it very persuasive. I think that there have there's been some pushback in the press from professional figures who feel attacked by it, but I found them really unpersuasive and it and it has uh, disappointed me that so many people have sort of just gone with, a, in particular, a negative piece in The Guardian, which I thought was really, really weak in ref- refuting the book and also was written by someone who hadn't even read the book. Um, I think the 
it's worth checking out, even if you don't agree with all of it. Uh, it's a really impassioned, really you know, energetically researched book on a problem that touches a lot of people. And very well written as well. Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, I think that we've been reductively causal about depression for a generation now. And an intelligent argument pushing back on that and thinking about the social and structural causes that make people endemically unhappy with their life and modern life was long overdue. I think he, I've only read about half the book. I think he did a terrific job. But I want to point out also, Laura, he's done a very good job of being, first of all, open about his past transgressions. And secondly, very transparent in responding to criticism about the book and his own sourcing uh, online. So to the extent that people have gone after him in the press, uh, he's been quite responsive and quite um, uh, to criticism and open to criticism um, in ways that I think were admirable. So I'm very psyched that you endorsed that book. Great. Isaac, what do you have? I have uh, two albums that I've just been listening to on repeat lately that I think might help people get through this suddenly, if you're on the East Coast, extremely hot and muggy (laughs) summer. We've gone from like 65 degree days to 90 degree days, and maybe these on your headphones will will make it go a little easier. The first is an album that came out, uh, I believe, last year by a group called Japanese Breakfast, which is the solo side project of a a singer-songwriter named Michelle Zahner. And that album is called Soft Sounds from Another Planet. Now, uh, Japanese Breakfast is working with a lot of different influences that don't always feel like they should go together. There's a lot of can in there. There's a lot of shoegaze. They're also, you know, going in a kind of Phil Spectory direction sometimes. There's a bit of sort of all those influences that you hear in early Bell and Sebastian Camera Obscura as well. So, uh, and the end result is kind of like a dreamier end of the bands you hear in the Roadhouse in Twin Peaks, you know? Um, Those and are I, pretty dreamy to begin with. Yeah, exactly. Well, but it, it's opposed to the Nine Inch Nails end. It's okay. more in the, the sort of dream poppier end. And uh, I discover ev- new things every time I listen to it. She's got a really great voice. She's a really badass guitarist. I just think it's a really good album that people should listen to. Um, and then the other one is this new album by Angelique Kidjo, who's a singer, songwriter, and activist originally from Benin. And she has done this full album cover of Talking Heads Remain in Light that is effing mind-blowing. I mean, Remain in Light is like one of my favorite albums of all time. I have a feeling it's probably... Uh, on the top 10 of a lot of uh, Gabfest listeners. And but it, it and it's heavily, heavily, the original album is heavily, heavily influenced by, you know, African music, by a- Afrobeat and polyrhythms and stuff like that. And, you know, Angelique Kidjo kind of reclaims this album and brings it firmly back into an African pop sensibility. Uh, and the results are stunning. She and David Byrne have performed it live together, I think, at Carnegie Hall last year before she recorded it. Um, and it's really, really stunning. Uh, in particular, I'm a particular fan fan of uh, she takes listening wind which is a kind of spooky but sort of somewhat filler track from the second half of the album and she just makes it into this like incredible uh, uh, odyssey and her cover of born under punches is like a straight up banger uh, and should be the song of the summer laura while i have you here i have to ask are you perchance a borgesian are you asking if i enjoy the the fiction of uh, Jorge Luis Borges? 
All right. Well, the reason I ask is that um, uh, many years ago, a friend of mine delivered uh, a supremely beautiful eulogy for a classmate of ours who had been prematurely lost. And um, <clears throat> excuse me. And um, he quoted in it two Borges essays. The essay is a history of eternity and a new refutation of time. I finally got around many years later to reading them. Um, they are, I mean, they're like everything Borges wrote, apparently. I mean, they're astonishing in their virtuosity, in their erudition, in their playfulness, in their ability to kind of invert all the presuppositions uh, of your own mind, the architecture of your own assumptions, um, but also swoonily beautiful and lyrical. I mean, they're just, he just is one of a handful of people to whom, whose name is just, uh, indicates not only a genre, but a, a way of looking at the world and being in the world, right? Along with Kafka, there's Borges, you know, you could argue, I don't know, Wittgenstein, Shakespeare, obviously, I mean, Nabokov, um, you know, uh, anyway, he's he's a giant of that stature and, and re-entering the stream of his thought with these two essays to me was uh, it, among the most satisfying reading experiences I've had in years. Let me just quickly read from A History of Eternity. The passage of the Aeneids that seeks to question and define the nature of time states that a prior acquaintance with eternity is indispensable since, as everyone knows, eternity is the model and archetype of time. Um, he goes on to say, we, we read in Plato's Timaeus that time is a moving image of eternity and it barely strikes a chord, distracting no one from the conviction that eternity is an image wrought in the substance of time. I propose to give a history of that image, that awkward word, enriched by human discord. And he just goes on from there. And it's, it's you, know, you know, never has a human being worn such depth of knowledge and reading so lightly, sort of played on the fiddle of everything that's ever been thought or said with such dexterity and ease. And, and by the end of it, you feel a million times enhanced. Uh, so I, 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 Borges is one of those writers who suffers from being easy enough to read when you're 18 or 20 years old. You have your mind blown and then you sort of move on. Don't move on. Go back to it. Go back. Find some new way in. Uh, I'm telling you, it is just a, a powerfully rewarding experience. So that's um, A History of Eternity and A New Refutation of Time, both of which are uh, miraculous, both of which are on the internet. Uh, Laura, thank you so much for coming in and filling in. You were terrific as always. Uh, it's great to be with you. Isaac, you were merely average. Well, you know, I did my best. <laughs> no, you were spectacular, and it was wonderful <laughs> Thank to you, have Steve. you back on the show. <laughs> it's always a pleasure. <laughs> no, you were spectacular. You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today at our show page, slate.com slash culturefest. You can email us at culturefest at slate.com or drop us a note at our Facebook page. That's facebook.com slash culturefest. We do have a Twitter feed. It's at slatecultfest. Our producer is Benjamin Frisch. Our production assistant is Daniel Schrader. For Laura Miller and Isaac Butler, I'm Stephen Metcalf. Thank you so much for joining us. We'll see you soon. 